selling. Not a stock, though that is something we talk about on this podcast, selling stocks, though we tend to talk more about buying stocks, since that matters more, selling. Not as in sales. This, this week's focus on selling is not probably going to generate you new leads or open up new markets for you selling. Selling as in your business, the one you started, the one perhaps instead that your grandparents started, the one for whatever reason, and there are usually more than one, that you now recognize it's time to sell. Selling without selling out. That's the book title of my guest this week for Authors in August, here to introduce you to my friend, Sonny Vanderbeck, and a wide-ranging conversation about business, about conscious capitalism, about mergers and acquisitions and bankers and deadlines, and you and your family, your employees, all your stakeholders selling without selling out. It's about business, yes, but it's also really about life. Only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. It is Authors in August. I hope you enjoyed Neil King and our American Ramble together last week. If you missed it, definitely listen back, especially if you're I don't know, on a summer mountain retreat. I guess it's beach ready too, although our author spends more times inland. But what a special conversation with a man who, having survived cancer in his 60s, decides to walk, yep, just two years ago from Washington, D.C. to New York City and what he found about himself and the world at large. Neil King, last week, we're about to start this week, but let's briefly talk about next week. Next week, it's mathematician Jordan Ellenberg. Bill Gates said this is one of the 10 books everybody should read, How Not to Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking. Very much looking forward to having a mathematician in the house next week and the week after, our final author in August. We're going back to the well with a best-selling novelist. You may remember Amor Tolls, his book, A Gentleman in Moscow, who joined me for authors in August in 2018. Part of the interest for Rule Breaker investors is Amor was a Wall Street employee for many years working for a firm before deciding, you know, what if I what if I wrote a novel? Well, the rest is nearly history now in his third best-selling novel, The Lincoln Highway, which came out a couple of years ago. Amor Tolls will rejoin me two weeks from today to talk about his newest novel, The Lincoln Highway. So American Ramble, Selling Without Selling Out, How Not to Be Wrong, and The Lincoln Highway this year's authors in August. And before I introduce Sonny Vanderbeck, I want to mention that I had foreshadowed Arthur Brooks in his book, Love Your Enemies, coming to this podcast. Arthur has a new book coming out this fall. In fact, it's coming out in September, co-written with Oprah. I think I mentioned this book. For this reason, he needed to reschedule our authors in August podcast. PR firms and publishers don't want you talking about your last book when your new one's coming out in a week. Arthur Brooks will be joining me in early September for that conversation, both about his new book and his old one. So the authors will continue past August. Sonny Vanderbeck is an investor, entrepreneur, best-selling author, and former military leader focused on accelerating the growth of mid-market companies and creating best-in-class, built-to-last businesses as the co-founder and managing partner at Satori Capital. 
with the 2019 publication of his book, Selling Without Selling Out. Sonny is helping even more entrepreneurs and CEOs learn how to find the right buyer or capital partner without sacrificing what matters most. Full disclosure, Sonny sits on the board with me included of Conscious Capitalism. Sonny, it's great to have you join me on Rule Breaker Investing. Thanks for having me. The first chapter of your book is entitled Selling, Buying, and Reselling My Company. Now, for those who haven't read it yet, the chapter is not advocating that I, your reader, sell, buy, and resell my company. Rather, Sonny, you're sharing your own story about, yeah, first selling, then buying back, then reselling your own company. Would you retell that story here in short? Well, in the spirit of you can't make this up, um, I was was very close to a transaction to selling my first company, Data Return, um, to Compaq, um, which was, was since acquired by HP. Um, we were very close to Compaq, shared a lot of cultural aspects, did a lot of work together, even had a joint board member. Um, it was, in, in all respects, the perfect acquisition. Um, instead of closing on our acquisition, HP and Compaq merged. So that left us a bit high and dry. Um, and for those of you that were in and around tech, you know, sort of circa year 2000, 2001, it was a pretty wild time. Um, there was lots of, lots of change happening is the most gentle way I could put it. Um, and, and the right choice for us was, was actually to be part of a larger business. Um, so that left us to go restart an entire process. And, and for context, we were um, one day away from announcing to the markets that um, Compaq was acquiring data return. We were Unbelievable. Well. One day. Um, and but, you were public. You were public. So. Yeah, we were, we were a public company. Um, so there's, you know, there are two kinds of deals. It's like signed and, and not signed. And this one was in the not signed bucket. Um, so we had to go back out to the market to go find a, a good fit. Um, we found another company um, that we thought was a great fit, we, was able to close that transaction. Um, I stayed on to lead the combined business units. And, and by the way, again, in the wild world of M&A, because I think people think gen generally these things go you know, relatively smoothly. And once you have a handshake on a deal, it's kind of done. And that's not how any of it usually works. Um, <laughs> In the middle of diligence, 9-11 happened. Mm. Like, it, it just doesn't get any wilder than that. Um, we managed to, to still sign and close. Um, within about 90 days, it became apparent to me that we had not done sufficient reverse due diligence on our acquirer. Hmm. Um, and so this idea of reverse due diligence is like, they're asking a bunch of questions, trying to figure out who you are, where you fit, what the culture's like, all those things. When you're selling, you should do the same thing. We didn't do that. Uh, and so what I thought I was getting and what I got were wildly different. These were some of the most successful software entrepreneurs in history, and yet their second business was not doing very well at all. Um, at first glance, outside in, seemed like it was doing great. From the inside out, not so great. Um, so much so that about 12 months after the transaction closed, um, my part of the business was pretty profitable. Um, most of the rest of the business wasn't, and it filed for Chapter 11. Subsequent to that, I got barred from participating in the auction to sell off the parts, which was interesting. They said, hey, if you're involved, it'll you know chill, chill the auction and no one will want to bid. And so you can't even show up. 
Um, there was a 28 hour long auction to determine the fate of my company. And I had no ability to participate in it whatsoever. I just got to sit and wait. Um, and for those of you that have been founders and entrepreneurs, um, wow, that was that I will never forget that 28 hours. Um, I was blessed. The story ended well, um, an investment firm who had done some diligence, um, on our business and wanted to back me and my team to spin it out prevailed at the auction. Um, so we bought it back and I got another shot. Um, well, just what a wonderful thing to be able to get another shot. Um, and so we spent the next four years, um, rebuilding, unwinding some of the things that had happened before, um, trying to you know make a difference for customers. Um, and ultimately sold it again in May of 2007 to an acquirer um, that we did, as you might imagine, a good bit more reverse due diligence on in that process. So it was a wild ride. Fantastic story, Sonny. Can you remind me, uh, you were a very young public company CEO, um, and that that itself is so impressive to me. But uh, what was Data Return's business, just in brief? Yeah, so, so the business was uh, mission-critical internet infrastructure. Um, so let, let me unpack what that really means. Um, if you were H&R Block and five days a year comprised most of your revenue and the entire, entire world was moving to filing their taxes online, um, that system is large, complex, prone to failure, pushes everything to the edge, and yet it has to work. So we were brought the applications that absolutely had to work. And if they didn't work, there was significant consequence for the organization. Mm. So it was um, when Match.com came to us, they had 20 servers. And, you know, you know, the story of how much larger that business is now today, hundreds, if not thousands and so forth. Surgical scheduling applications, right? It's just kind of important that it works. Uh, so, so we were generally given um, the most important most complex and most prone to failure applications um, with the mandate of keep them running. And then in round two, um, we built the first enterprise cloud computing. Um, so we launched that in late 04, early 05, a true sort of enterprise ready um, cloud. Yeah. And if you were using the word cloud back then, you would have been one of the earliest dudes to be saying that word. And most other people would be wondering, what is this guy talking about? Right. Yeah, especially with my name. They're like, a sunny cloud. I don't, I'm confused. What's happening here? Uh, well, thank you for that window back into the direct real world experience you had, Sonny, with selling, buying, and then reselling uh, your first company that you, that you founded. Um, let's go back a little bit further briefly, if you like. Any other elements of your earlier life from being a kid? I don't know where you grew up to being an army ranger. I do know that about you to some years at Microsoft that for you have been integral to your mindset, which I think is a big theme of your book, One's Mindset. You know, I think everything's formative, but a few things stand out for me. Um, one, I, I grew up as, as an outside kid. Um, our family had a garden. Um, my dad's degree is in ethnobotany. Um, and he's a master gardener. Um, it's a lot of biology in, in the house. Love it. Uh, and learning about cycle of life and ecosystems and this idea of second and third order impacts that, Hey, if you spray a pesticide to kill all the bad bugs, you probably kill all the good bugs too. 
etc. Um, and so I think his early exposure to systems thinking, but with my hands in, in a garden and being outside in the woods and so forth. Um, and, and I think that informs a lot of how I made sense of the world past that, that everything we do has an effect. Um, some of it good, some of it bad, often mixed, be cognizant and aware of how those things play out. Um, I think with that also came this idea of of time and, and thinking long-term. Again, to use the garden metaphor that was actually also specific um, to my environment is the things that we do today can have significant impacts later. Include that in your perspective. Then we go to the time in, in the Rangers. Um, there were a couple of things I learned there. Um, one is that we are all capable of more than we believe mm. we are capable of. Um, that, that limiting belief is actually mostly what's in the way. Um, and nice platitude, but here's how this plays out on the ground. Um, so I started college at 16. Um, I went for a year. I was bored and it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. So I decided to do something really different. Um, probably the most different thing I could imagine and go join the military and be an army ranger. What did mom um, and dad think, by the way? You know, so I was 17. Um, they, they weren't super excited about it at all. Um, although I think dad understood. Um, dad volunteered for the military at one point, spent you know a few years there as well. Um, so I think he had a good a good understanding of what was going on inside my head to go do this. And um, so supportive, but concerned, I think is how I would, would describe it. Um, so when I joined the military, I don't think I could run a mile without stopping. So my experience in the early stuff, the basic training and advanced infantry and all that is I was struggling to keep up, like just barely hanging in there. And I remember having a conversation um, with one of the drill instructors. Um, I still owe the guy a steak. If I could find him. Um, He's he probably listening right now. I, I hope so. Um, I said to him, I said, look, I've got this, this ranger contract. And what that really means is you have the uh, ability to go to the screening program. And if you make the screening program, then you can ultimately go be a ranger. But it was all the contract gave you was a shot at it. Um, and I said to him something along the lines of, look, this is ridiculous. Like, I can barely keep up with, like, regular Army stuff. This is rough. Uh, I should probably just drop this contract and just stop thinking about this. Uh, and he looked over and said, well, it didn't beat you yet. Why don't you just keep going until it does? And turns out he was right. That's what I did. So the almost the opposite of this sort of long-term extended horizon, one of the things I learned um, in the process of becoming a ranger and staying a ranger, because in, in ranger battalion, you kind of have to earn it every day, um, was that when it gets really, really hard, um, eye on the prize and long-term visualization and all that stuff, it doesn't help. It's too hard. When it's really hard, you just have to figure out what's the next thing I can do to move forward. Can I take 10 more steps? Can I make it to the next bend? Can I get across this creek? Can I get through in a business context this one more meeting successfully and then I'll see where I am? Can I go one more day? Um, so in the toolbox is the ability to pull horizon down to the immediate. 
Hmm. and just keep going until you can't. And what I learned about myself through that process was I could go much further than my brain thought I could and turned out to end up as a ranger and made it through the, you know, screening program and, and the rest is history. Uh, so, so that learning has been helpful. Um, business is not easy. It's not just complex, uh, but almost every company uh, has part of their origin story, whether they tell it or not, at least one brush with death, at least one event in the early days that how that turns out is going to determine whether or not the company continues to exist at all. Uh, and so meeting those days, having had that experience was very helpful because I could just look at it and say, well, I'm not cold. I'm not tired. I'm not hungry. All I can do is see if we can move forward and take the mm. next most important action and do that. Um, and so that that skill has become useful when it gets really hard. What a wonderful life lesson. And thank you for sharing that because I know you opened up some eyes and ears when you reminded us that we are capable of so much more than we might think. And you can't do it all at once, Sonny, right? It's that next step. It's I guess caterpillars do turn into butterflies all at once, but I feel like it's a whole process that caused that metamorphosis. And I think that's such an important thing, especially for business and the power of persistence. And your book, Selling Without Selling Out, let's let's turn in that direction now, Sonny. I think a lot of people, when they think about selling their business, it might be somewhat akin, of course, we have a lot of investors listening, somewhat akin to selling a stock. They're thinking, you know, it's make it about the valuation and it's about the timing and it's about the transaction. It's it's numerical. But but chapter two of your book is entitled Preparing a Sale Starts with Preparing Yourself. And in the book you write, and I quote, there are things nobody talks about, things that matter just as much as and sometimes more than money. In this book, I'm going to talk about them. End quote. You're speaking here most of all to mindset. Can you get us into that some? Yeah, I'll start with this. Um, most of the people that think that business, that's selling a business or taking on an investor is, is a financial transaction, haven't done it before. They might have advised on it, um, heard about it, were the recipient of it, lots of other things, but it wasn't their thing. Um, when it's your thing, and you go through it, you often learn the hard way that there's a lot more to it. You learn the hard way that there's a bunch of stuff that you actually do need to care about um, that no one else cares about. It's your job to care about. Uh, and I'll give you a couple of examples that I've found helpful. Um, one, think about those people you know that complain about their investor. And the story is very often, oh, wow, we got this great valuation and look at us and we're a unicorn and blah, blah, blah. But gosh, I sure do hate these investors. It just bothered me with nonsense and they don't understand my business. And right, we know that complaint. Um, I have not heard anyone complain about yeah, we, we got a fair price and I love my investor, but we only got a fair price. Hmm. No one makes that complaint. What does that tell us? Right? That tells us in, in an investor context, 
um, there is in fact more to being in a decade long relationship with somebody than just money. Uh, I, I had the privilege of speaking to a group of a couple hundred CEOs on this topic. Uh, or this is early on before I, I wrote the book. Um, and I asked the question of the audience, assume you've got two buyers of your company and they are identical in all respects, except one. One of them is going to fire 100% of your employees the day after close. How much more do they have to pay you to do that? And that question, I think, cuts all the way to the essence of the book. Uh, and as you might imagine, what I found in the audience was this sort of popular narrative about CEOs and, you know, they're just trying to get paid and it's all about money. Like, that's not actually my experience. And I'm not saying those don't exist. Um, at least half of the room, their, their answer to my numerical question, how much? was no. Um, and it was actually not a gentle no. It was an expletive-laden no mm. um, and included such comments as over my dead body and that will never happen on my watch. Um, the Most of the ones who did have a number said, oh, well, $5 million or 50 or whatever the number was. The next comment after that was so that I can give that much money to all of those employees. What I saw in that moment was my internal experience and beliefs that there was more to this than just an economic transaction was shared by most CEOs. What the unfortunate thing is, no one talks about that till after the deal. It's done, it's transacted, now you've got a story, many of whom are in, in the book. There's these stories about, I sold my business and my acquirer did XYZ. And many of us have heard the stories about all the terrible things acquirers have done post-transaction. So my question is, well, maybe we could figure that out before we actually do mm. it. So to do that, we first have to agree, like, do you care about anything other than money? And if you do, like, read the book. If you don't, then the book is not for you. It's for the opposite of you. For those of us that we do care about more than money, the first thing to do is to figure out who, who do you care about? And once you figure out who you care about, now you can start to think about what is it that you want for each of these groups? Now you're armed. Now you can go into a conversation with a potential acquirer or investor and say, this is what I want for each of these groups and figure out how do they match up with that? And, and I'll give you an, an example, um, Often when selling a smaller company to a large company, um, there is both the opportunity and the challenge. The opportunity is you can have significant career growth for some of your team because now they get to play in this larger pool. And in my case, when I sold my business, most of my team over the coming years were significantly promoted. And the C-suite of the combined business was a lot of my team. Like, how cool is that for all these career opportunities wow. for these people? Now, on the other side, um, sometimes the culture is different. Sometimes it's different in good ways. Sometimes it's different in bad ways. Um, at least be clear about what it is and understand where your priorities are. Um, you will have a day, this, this happened to a CEO friend of mine, where HR shows up 
and they say, we're from corporate and we're here to help. It's come to our attention that your office doesn't follow our dress code. Can't make it up. They really did. Everything was going great. This is in a, in a kind of a coat and tie industry. And, and my CEO friend um, had a business in Austin, which Austin's a more casual culture. And they prided themselves on a sort of casual work environment um, in a stuffy industry. And that was part of how they attracted people. So you can imagine how it went over when HR showed up and it was basically like, y'all got to start wearing ties mm. in, a, in a group that, you know, the prior company had prided itself on um, being focused on high culture, more casual work environment, et cetera. Disconnect. Very much. Some great examples in storytelling, Sonny. Preparing a sale starts with preparing yourself and the questions that you ask of yourself. I love that story, the question you ask those CEOs in the room, their reactions. Uh, thinking again here of many of my listeners who are investors in public companies only. I mean, when we sell, it takes one second. You tap a phone, click a mouse, a second later, less than a second later, it's typically bought by someone else. Now, we don't know who bought. We likely will never meet that person, if it is, even is a person or institution, face-to-face. For those of us who are investors but not entrepreneurs, could it be any easier? But to your point, for entrepreneurs to whom you are selling counts a very great deal. It can help or haunt you years later to whom you are selling. Sonny, you start off drawing a distinction between strategic buyers and financial buyers. Talk us through some of the options entrepreneurs can sell to, including a new category of buyer you call the entrepreneurial buyer. Sure. So I'll, I'll cover all three. First are the strategic buyers. And, and generally, the strategic buyer is when you're going to sell your business to another operating company. Uh, you make widgets, somebody else makes widgets, and they want to own your widget making factory and your widget customers. Um, so that's sort of on the extreme end. Those tend to have your company completely subsumed into the acquirer. Um, and again, none of these, I don't make a value judgment on right. any of these kinds of transactions. This could be amazing. This could be horrific. Yes. Um, and, and I'll, I'll give you an example of when a strategic acquirer can be a great fit. Um, I actually talked to a CEO recently who had this challenge. Um, he was exhausted. He was absolutely like he had given everything he had to give um, and he like could, just couldn't do it anymore at the pace he was going at. Uh, that's a good time to sell to another company who just kind of wants to absorb your business, maybe into a new business unit, maybe into existing business units. Um, but that gives you the opportunity to start the wind down and, and be able to, to take a break. Um, if you sell to the second or third category, the financial buyer or the entrepreneurial buyer. Imagine for a minute that an investor wrote a 50 million or 100 million or $200 million check to buy a company. And how are they feeling on the first day? They're super excited. They're like, we just did this thing and now we're going to do this and we're going to move this over here and grow sales and do it. And like, there's, they have all this new energy. They're showing up with a bunch of energy and they're ready to go and they're ready to grow and you're tired. Hmm. So again, this is connecting back a little bit to like getting really clear about where you're at personally too. So, so the financial buyers and entrepreneurial buyers can be a really good fit for 
somebody that still wants to go. They've got, still got things they're trying to do in the world, things they're trying to build. Um, and I'll make a distinction between the financial and entrepreneurial buyers. Um, so financial buyer is going to be mostly financially focused. Um, much of their language is going to be around leverage and accounts receivable and gross margin. And it's sort of an Excel lens on the world, um, more of an objective lens on the world. Um, and, and oftentimes that can be a good place to go if you want to check and you want them to leave you alone. Now, they're never going to leave you alone as much as you think they will, or they say they will, or you hope they will. Don't just don't expect that. Um, but the more passive, less involved, um, but you're also probably not going to get much help. either. You're not going to find the, oh, well, here's the team that can do you know commercialization and go to market in this sector. It's not what's going to be there. Um, the the entrepreneurial class of investor that's emerged over the last decade or so, um, they're a funny mix because they have um, the financial motiv motivations and incentives and capital. But by and large, you'll find a bunch of ex-founders and ex-CEOs in that crowd. So these are, are people um, largely like myself who, look, I've been in the chair. And, and one has either made payroll or not pay, made payroll. <laughs> and if you've never been in a position where 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 people are relying on you personally to do your job or they don't eat, it, there's not anything in the world like that. Um, and once you've had that experience, it's, it's, it's very eye-opening. Um, so this, this entrepreneurial crowd tends to come with a set of skills. right? And, and in some cases, like in, in our case, um, there are probably five or eight things that we're, we think we're particularly good at. We've got life experience there, both in our operating companies um, and in our experience as investors. And so like, as you look at Satori, our, our private equity part of our business um, is covered up with people who have been CEOs and founders. Uh, we tend to want to be more involved because the fun part isn't the money part. Like that's incidental to what we're doing. The fun part is... Maybe we could help figure out how to grow the sales force or to build one. And many companies that don't have a sales force at all, maybe we can help figure out how to market better or faster and get the company to a new level of scale. Problem solving. That's right. Lots of problem solving. Um, and we don't tend to want or need any credit for it. We just love seeing it happen. Like business is, a, is an absolute blast. doesn't mean there's not hard days. Um, and bad stuff, but the actual process is a ton of fun. And so if, if you're looking for somebody that feels more like a partner, who's going to help you get where you're going, um, that's when I would advise somebody to look towards the entrepreneurial style, um, capital versus financial capital or a, um, sale to a strategic. I really appreciate that breakdown. So strategic buyers, financial buyers, entrepreneurial buyers. I'm sure there's some overlap between these things, but especially for entrepreneurs hearing you for the first time who are thinking about this for the first time, it's really helpful to have a few buckets where you can start placing people and start understanding what's happening out there. I want to read a, a quick section from page 65 of your book and have you identify which one this kind of speaks to and represents. I'm quite sure some people hearing me right now have had this experience. I think the storytelling is fun, Sonny. Here we go. Meet Bob, you wrote. He is an executive at your acquirer, and he got to his lofty position because he's highly skilled 
at climbing the corporate ladder. For years, Bob navigated the bureaucracy, hopping up the chain of command by doing whatever worked. If he needed to throw other people under the bus to get ahead, he rolled with it and never looked back. Bob is meticulous with expense reports. He ensures everyone who reports to him takes connecting flights whenever the difference in price is more than $400, or he won't sign their expense claims. He's a stickler for the rules and the dress code. The trouble is, he's not all that adept at delivering value to the customer. He doesn't have a vision. He isn't inspiring. And if you're honest with yourself, he would never have landed a job at your old company. Bob can't deliver what you can, which is which is why your acquirer had to pay for your business. There are a lot of Bobs in the world, and you know that. But this one, this Bob is your new boss. End quote. That sounds like a lived experience. (laughs) (laughs) I think a little bit what I'm speaking to there um, is like being honest about who you are and what you're good at and where you thrive. And and there are some founders um, that can find themselves in large businesses, adapt very quickly. Um, Maybe their reporting structure gives them the opportunity to bring a little spark to the business. Um, But more often than not, the inertia of a large business is going to win out over your energy, even if it's unlimited. and so like I, I've learned like I'm, I would be a terrible employee, especially for somebody like Bob. Um, you should at least ask yourself the question, like, would I work for these people? Would I let my children work for these people? Um, and sometimes the answer is, yeah, it'll be a good experience. I'll learn a new thing. You know, off we go. Um, and sometimes the answer is there's no way. Um, so just just be real, realistic with yourself. And, and I'm going to point out. Um, a really specific piece of advice, ask for the org chart mm. post acquisition. Show me in the diagram where all the people that work for me now, where are they going to report? Love it. Because out of that question, a whole bunch of new conversations are going to come and you might find things like, oh, so you mean sales and marketing isn't going to report to me anymore, but I'm going to be responsible for the P&L and that's how I'm going to be measured but I actually have no control over sales and marketing and all of HR is going to corporate and, 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 and in some cases it's the opposite. You're like, no, it, it runs as a contained business unit, et cetera. Um, that, and you're like, wait, where's, where's the accounting team? I don't see it on the chart. And they're like, oh, oh yeah, we're not keeping any of those people. Wow. Well, it, it's not good or bad. Again, no, no value judgments in this book, good or bad. It's just eyes wide open know exactly what you're walking into and what you're bringing your team into and what you're bringing your customers into. Play it forward, one of my favorite phrases. And it's it, it's not easy to do, but with some prompting, with some good coaching that you're giving us here, guidance, asking that extra question, often about what the future is going to look like and maybe creating a little bit of accountability for those who are answering it. What Put the org chart on paper. Give me the e-copy of that. Make Let's sign a gentleman's agreement here in terms of what things are going to look like. That just seems like um, a superhero power that is available to all of us who aren't superheroes. 
Sonny, conscious capitalism is a topic near and dear to your heart. I know we're both presently on the CC board where you've served for many years. In the middle of your book, I, I might almost say in the heart of your book, you open things up with a chapter entitled The Conscious Seller. Now, a lot of people hearing us right now may be encountering this phrase for the first time. What the heck do you mean by a conscious seller? Well, I'll start with with this idea. Um, someday, someone that's not you is going to own and run your business. You might say, well, over my dead body. Well, yeah, actually, that may be how it turns out. Um, but you're not immortal, so it's not forever. So just understand that you can just kind of let it happen to you or to your heirs. Um, and and the some of the most disappointing stories to hear are the ones um, of a family who's been given the keys to the business um, and the CEO that ran it has passed away and there's no one to run it and the family doesn't know what to do with it and they rely on it for their livelihood. It's, mm. it's really unfortunate. So here's the idea on the conscious seller. Um, it's almost back to square one. Like get clear about who you care about. And my assumption going into this is most of us actually do care about someone besides ourselves or just ourselves and our family. Um, these CEOs, we do care a lot about the people in our business, whether they be suppliers, the community, customers, anything that looks like a stakeholder, we, we actually do care. And so part of being conscious is being thoughtful about what do I want for these people? How can I create value for them? Um, and how can I do it in a way that minimizes trade-offs, that I have as few trade-offs as possible and as many win-wins as possible. And you know, you have to recognize like nothing's perfect. There's no perfect acquisition. There's no perfect divestiture. Um, but if you can be clear about it and be thoughtful about it and care about others, you can get to extraordinary outcomes. You mentioned at one point in the book that conscious capitalism, which as a phrase, I'm going to say has existed for about 15 years. Um, John Mackey, Raj Sisodi wrote a book 10, 11 years ago called Conscious Capitalism, but the movement had started before then. Some would say it dates back to the Greeks. And I know, at least in your own life, Sonny, practicing many of the uh, tenets of conscious capitalism without necessarily using that language, you were focusing on the word sustainability at the time. And, and the way you've described sustainability or conscious capitalism these days is it kind of essentially revolves around, and I quote, I'm quoting you here, in the long run, when you take care of the ecosystem, the ecosystem will take care of you. I also hear some ethnobotany going on in there. And you know, as a, a gardener, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of ethnobotanists and ecosystem thinking. Would you like to add anything to that? Or shall we move on to the next question? You know, I think I, I will add one thing. Um, when we draw our time horizon out and we have a little bit of long-term thinking, the things that we call conscious capitalism, they're kind of self-evident, right? If you think about it through the lens of, uh, I'm the largest employer in a small town and my cousin's ranch is downstream of my manufacturing plant. And my employees go to the same church I go to 
And when I have breakfast at Dairy Queen, my suppliers are there too. You see the actions of all of your behaviors. And so when your family name's on the door and you can never sell the business, how do you behave? You mm. behave long-term. And what's long-term behavior? It's this stuff we call conscious capitalism. It's back to, if you care for others, they'll care for you. And that, that idea um, has a name now. It's, it's conscious capitalism. We use sustainability early on for the nod to the long-term thinking. Uh, but as soon as you draw your time horizon out, these, these behaviors all become self-evident. Love that. Well, that sets up my next question for you. Let's play a quick game together. This one's called the connotation game. It's going to be a very quick game, Sonny. Here, I'm going to try a phrase out on you, and you tell me whether for you it has a positive or a negative connotation and why. You ready? Great. Private equity. Positive, because I've spent the last 15 years of my life trying to make a different flavor of private equity that's conscious and cares about stakeholders. I have to ask you more. Obviously, I'm talking to somebody who is in that field. I know many others. I'm, it's a wide-ranging field. At different points in your book, you are constructively critical of some of your peers. A lot of us might just read about private equity in the newspaper or not really part of it. I myself, having never sold the one company I've started, have never mixed with these types. I see them at uh, business conferences. Share a little bit more about your viewpoint on private equity, both your own and that of others. Sure. And, and I'll start with a, a little bit of context. Um, much like I believe that CEOs, by and large, get a bad rap in the media. Um, years ago, somebody tried to make a good news cable channel where the entire thing was just going to be all, look at all the wonderful, awesome things happening in the world. And that channel failed. Um, so just bluntly, like stories about bad behavior, be it CEOs or private equity, get clicks. Salacious stories about how party A ripped off party B allegedly get clicks. So, so part of it, there's a, a, a narrative and a backdrop um, largely driven by people who don't understand this stuff that gets lots of clicks and they're in the business of selling clicks. So with that in mind... Very well um, said, by the way. I'm glad you said that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, with that in mind, um, what there are a couple of challenges for for private equity in, in the sort of default format, um, and one is time horizon. Their structures are built by their customers, who are the limited partners. By and large, mostly it's pension funds. Um, so if you want to go upstream and you say, "Hey, where does this time horizon get created?" It's not actually created by the private equity firms. It's created upstream by the pension funds. Wow which is an interesting, there's a whole unpacking there about like how does private capital flow in our environment and where's most of the private capital reside and who's making those decisions and why are they making them that way? But that's for another conversation. Um, so, so by and large, they have a, a structure, a business structure required by their customers that says they can only hold for about five years. And there's a bunch of stories and ways around it and blah, blah, blah. But, but really the answer is they are expected to hold a given investment for five years. And that means that on day one, you have a five-year horizon, which not bad. Hey, we live in a high change world. Lot, lots going to happen in five years. Um, like y'all think back to 2018, 
that seems like it was 15 years ago. Lots <laughs> happened since then. Um, but True. in year three, now they have a two-year horizon. And it's not really two-year because they're going to sell it in a year, so they only have a one-year horizon. So you've got this time horizon problem that prioritizes short-term decisions. It, it's one of the concerns with public companies as well, as I got the next earnings call. And am I willing to get on that earnings call and say, we're thinking for the long term and we're doing X, Y, Z. And if people want to sell the stock, fine, they can sell the stock. Um, most boards and leadership teams of public companies cannot withstand the assault that comes when they do that. Um, that problem shows up, that time horizon problem shows up in private equity by and large as a structural artifact of what their customers want and need. So they're necessarily going to have a shorter time horizon. Um, and, and just to, to illuminate like how bad this problem is. So our, our business, um, we have built our structures in a way that they have an unlimited duration. We can be an investor as long as is appropriate. And sometimes it's short and sometimes it's long, but we just needed to take that off the table. Um, when we talk to people who invest in in traditional private equity funds what we hear about our structure is they're scared of it and they don't like it and there's a bunch of reasons why they can't do it and that's okay like i don't that's fine but it's it's interesting to sort of understand that there's almost an allergic reaction to long-term thinking in that that ecosystem upstream uh, so so that's one issue that you you have to deal with overcome figure out what it means and and practically um, as an owner of a company, what that means is there's a date you can put on your calendar in Outlook by which they are a forced seller of your business. They are required by their documents to sell. Good to know that. It could be 12 years from now. It could be five. You, you better know going into it. Um, so that's one issue that's it's just in the room all the time, and it's a real thing. The second one is just the background. Um, if you came up, if you grew your knowledge base, as a leader of people and a decider of business matters, but only as an observer, you will make sense of the world in a different way than someone who's done it. And so we just think there's a lot of value in someone who's actually done it. It's one thing to say, well, you should raise revenues and reduce costs. Well, thanks guys. I didn't think of that. <laughs> um, I'm not saying I've ever been in that meeting, but I've been in that meeting. Um, I didn't say those words out loud, though. I was, I'm was i an adult enough to know the difference between inside voice and, and outside voice. Um, so having been in the chair and having done the things and having them not always work, um, you get a different flavor of the experience. So, so the indictment of and negative comments about they only care about X, Y, and Z. Well, sometimes that's just how they came up. They came up caring their their boss and their boss's boss said the way to success is to care about these, these financial metrics and only these financial metrics and try to reduce business to an Excel spreadsheet. Um, so if that's how you learn, I occasionally hear um, complaints about, so well, so-and-so is not a very good manager, not in the private equity context, but just in general. My... Next question is always, where is their life experience where they worked for a great manager? Most people work for crappy managers. So we've got to teach them what being an extraordinary manager is like unless they've had one in their life. So you've got this pattern where it's financial first, financial focused, short-term focused, and you see success around you 
in that path. So what do you do? You emulate it. Now, this is not true of all private equity firms. There are many that have um, people with business backgrounds and that care about other things. Um, and I do think it's a little different here than in venture capital than it is in, in private equity, for sure. But that's part of the issue is that the things that their investors care about are going to show up in your board meeting. And a financial first lens on the world is going to show up in your board meeting. And you you really describe it as a, a language unto itself, in a sense, in your book, Selling Without Selling Out. And I quote, Sonny, most private equity investors have a background in finance and not much else. They are most comfortable talking about financial analytics and tools because that is the language they understand, end quote. And I think I, I take that as a value-neutral statement, just a statement of truth. It's about what has been your experience and what are the tools that have gotten you to where you are. And it really is true to maybe realize that some people just have different angles and sometimes whole industries just have a different language or a different lens. And just being self-aware and conscious of that is so helpful. Uh, another thing that you advise in your book that sounds really helpful to me. Again, this is nothing I've ever done, and I'm, I'm kind of hoping to die without ever doing this, but I love this. Take a trip to their headquarters. You advise potential sellers. And I love that because, of course, one of the four pillars of conscious capitalism is conscious culture. Uh, so, Sonny, what cultural signs am I looking for as I visit the headquarters of my potential buyers? You know, I think the the cultural signs um, start with what your culture is, right? So, so what you're trying to look for is as close of a match as you possibly can. Um, and and I'll so I'll draw some contrast here, just as an example. You know, we talked about the dress code um, one earlier. You betcha. That's a marker, and again, n- none of these are um, a specific issue by themselves. But your job. Is, is just to sort of build this mosaic of what's it like there. Um, so if you have an airy, high energy, open floor plan, people cheering, high-fiving, making eye contact, and you go to your acquirer's headquarters or visit their manufacturing plant and it's eyes on the floor, sounds like a library, some dusty old carpet from 1978 and a bunch of trees got cut down to make the wood paneling in the rooms that have no light. That's information that they might be a little different than you. <laughs> I would like just be aware. And, and I'm going to give you one like really practical like this. And this really happened. Um, and, and I may be a little light on details to, to protect the guilty. Um, we were looking at a business that did recycling of flammable materials. And we went to go do a plant tour and it was just kind of dirty. And it's a funny, like when I look at a manufacturing plant, I'm looking in the corners. I want to see under tables and in corners. And I want to know is the battery box and the forklift rusted out or not. They seem like little things. It's not about that thing. It's about what what it's a marker for elsewhere. Um, what I don't want to see is a dirty rag on the floor around a lathe. Um, lathes mm. spin at you know ten thousand RPM. If you get a rag near them, they might take an arm with it. They knew we were coming, so 
if you know someone's coming and your cleaned up version of your plant are these like dangerous safety things, you should pay attention to that kind of stuff. Um, these these little details. There was another one. This this one that that recycled flammable stuff. Um, I was walking outside of the plant and there were these grates, these sort of steel grates. And I looked down between the grates to see what's on the ground. And lo and behold, there was a cigarette butt on the ground mm. next to this giant tower of flammable materials. Yikes. Like, okay, like, hey, that's not for me. This might be a good investment for somebody else. Um, for us, the sort of care and pride in your work and your plant and safety, like they matter a lot to us. So here's the reason I pointed out the cigarette butt. It's not about that. When you're looking for culture, you're looking for these little markers of who are these people? What do they care about? Who do they care about? Again, trying to take this conscious lens. If I can figure out who somebody cares about, I can also figure out how might they behave in a certain situation. And so if you see a lot of joy in an office or a plant and a lot of eye contact and a lot of motivation that tells you some things about what it's like to work there, which also means it's going to tell you some things about what it's like when you work there too. Great point. And another point, quoting your book again, Sonny, you will not be able to shield your people from the culture they are walking into since the acquirer's culture predominates. Makes a lot of sense. But again, playing things forward and being conscious of that is so important, I think. Let's move on to, well, you give really practical advice throughout your book, but in particular, let's focus on the process, the selling process. So it's born of your own entrepreneurial experience, of course, but also working with so many entrepreneurs heading up Satori Capital, because you're looking at other people's businesses all the time, Sonny. Sonny, by the way, quick aside, where did the name Satori come from? So the name Satori came after a a year and a half long journey of trying to find a name. Um, it was so important to, to Randy and to me to find the perfect name um, that we actually ran our business with no name for a year and a half. I don't recommend it. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a giant pain, um, but it was worth it. Um, Satori is a Japanese word that means the feeling at the moment of aha or the experience of enlightenment, not enlightenment itself. So it's the internal experience. So part of what we're trying to do here um, is not just you know, make investments and help companies grow and do all those things. We're actually trying to bring this aha moment to other investors as well. If we can get other people to copy us, we're winning. Like we'll know we're done when the things that make us different are no longer different. If every investor thought long-term, had operating experience and was able to make a difference for the portfolio companies and use the conscious capitalism tenets in what they did, like my work is done. I can retire now. Love it. Totally love it. And in fact, I'm reflecting, operating without a name for a while, I'm reflecting on one of my early stock picks as a kid, one of my worst stocks ever. The name of the company was NBI Incorporated. They were based in Colorado. Check it. This is the uh, mid-1980s. NBI stood for nothing but initials. And at the time, I thought that was hilarious. And that was enough for me to buy a few shares as a young guy. 
of a company. It didn't work out well, by the way. But uh, I know Satori Capital is much more sustainable than NBI. But now uh, getting undistracted and returning to my main thread here, practical advice, the selling process. Um, Sonny, how about a few do's and don'ts when you now know you're going to sell and the process begins? Yeah, and and I'll make a, a distinction or a lack thereof here that that taking on an investor and selling are are largely the same thing. Excellent. Yeah. New people are going to own some stuff. You got to interview them, et cetera. So these are are r- roughly interchangeable, and and that broadens it, um, which makes it even better. Yeah. So do uh, do figure out what you care about. Like if I, if I've only said one thing in this podcast ten times, it's probably been that. Um. Do be clear with everybody involved that that's what you want. Like if you have all these things you care about and you don't tell anybody, you miss the point. Uh, do write it down. Now, many of us entrepreneurs go, oh, I remember everything. I'll never forget. I know what it is. Cool story. Write it down. My own experience, because I'm one of those. I'm like, I don't know, I won't forget. And I know exactly what I mean. And all those things the process of writing it down is very clarifying. Mm. My experience was like you write it down and you look at it the next day and you go, no, that's not actually it. Like it's close, but it's not the thing. So you write it down again and you tune it and tweak it. And when you write it down, now you've been given the ability to transmit it. And there's this funny thing um, that, that I've learned about a, a well-written document that's arguing in a meeting with somebody who has an off the cuff argument almost always wins. Let me translate that into this process. If you go into a meeting with an investment banker and you say, Oh, I care about X, Y, and Z. The inside voice of that investment banker is going to say, no, they don't. When we get down to closing day and you have to pick an <laughs> acquirer a or acquirer B and this other one's going to pay $3 million more, they're going to pick this other one. They will ignore that comment. They'll just outright and look, there are is that true of every investment banker? No, of course not. There are wonderful Generally. ones out there that care about this. But in Generally. general, they're gonna hear you mumble something about you care about values and culture and blah, blah, blah. And they'll it'll be a throwaway comment for them. When you present them with a clearly articulated document about what your priorities are, they are much more likely to take it seriously. Great point. And, and they're much more likely to also remember they need to be able to communicate that too to their organization, the potential investors or acquirers, you got to write this stuff down. Uh, it also helps you to share it with other people and see what you've missed, right? It, when you write it down, it's an insight only. So go home to your spouse and have the conversation about well, what else do I care about that I didn't put on this document? So I'll give you another do. It is okay to care about yourself and your family. Now, this seems backwards, given everything we've been told about, you know, CEOs and how they make sense of the world and all of this. Many of us have spent large portions of our lives sacrificing almost everything to make a go at a business. And so as a um, as almost a superpower, we've been able to ignore what we want and need and ignore what our family wants and needs in pursuit of building this organization to do all these wonderful things in the world. This is not the time for that. 
you can prioritize amongst them later, but God, like be honest about what is it that you want for yourself and what is it that you want for your family? And I'll give you a little side example there. If you're being acquired and you live in Southern California and headquarters of your acquirers in Albany, New York, and you think you're not going to start spending time on a plane flying to Albany, New York, you're confused about how big companies work. <laughs> you have to go to headquarters. Um, so that has some implications on your family. Maybe you ran your business in a way that you could always go to every recital and baseball game and et cetera. But now you're working for Big Co and you spend 50% of your time traveling. Yeah. It's okay right. to not want to do that. Again, this is one of the few times where I'm like actually stopping to pay attention to what your family needs and to what you need is an important step. Um, so that's do's and I got, you know, 300 pages of do's and don'ts, but um, th there are some do's. Those don't, are all pretty great. Give us two don'ts. Yeah. Do not let your emotions get in the way. Something's going to happen. Um, sometimes three things. Things are going to happen. They're going to rub you the wrong way. <laughs> and you're going to want to go crazy and call the deal off and do a bunch of entrepreneur stuff. Don't do that. Like be deliberate and thoughtful. Doesn't mean don't be mad. You can be mad or disappointed or whatever emotion you want to have and process. Just like keep it over there away from your decision making. Um, as, as my partner says, Randy, my business partner, um, and I'll make this my second do, um, even though it's kind of a don't, um, don't pass up a good deal in pursuit of a fair deal. There will be some term in your 140 page document that's unfair. Or maybe it's fair and you've convinced yourself it's unfair. You go, oh, that's horrible. They can't ask for that. That's not whatever. I'm mad and I want to call the whole deal off. Is the deal a good deal? Taken on its merits as a whole or not? And if it's a good deal, but there's some unfair term, like move on. Like, of course, there's going to be an unfair term in there. Um, do not let that thing get in the way of a good deal. If you've got the right acquirer, the right investor, get the thing closed. Love that. Thank you for highlighting those. And you're right. You've written a book, a, few, a couple hundred pages with do's and don'ts, more do's than don'ts. But thank you for just giving us, giving us a few there. Um, moving now toward the end with you, Sonny. Thank you for being so generous with your time and insights with us this week. The day after the close, which also happens to be your final chapter, it makes me wonder if it's like the stereotype we hear about boats. The happiest day of a boat owner's life, we'll hear it, is the day she closes on that new boat. And the least happy day of the boat owner's life is the day after the close. In this case, because of all the responsibilities and maintenance, for some people at least, all of those costs can outweigh the advantages of having both. So as I started really our interview, so much of your book is about mindset. Can you talk us through the, the typical mindset, maybe the optimal mindset the day after the close? Well, I'll, I'll draw the contrast between two CEOs, um, one of whom got very clear about what she wanted and who she cared about and was thoughtful and deliberate 
and did reverse diligence and found a good deal and closed it. And now it's the day after and they know that they did as good of a job for all of their stakeholders in however they wanted to prioritize them to get them whatever it is they wanted to get them. They're still going to have a kind of a sad, weird day. <laughs> That's your best outcome is a sad, weird day. <laughs> the one who didn't do any of that stuff. And then the day after and the days after that begin to watch the acquirer dismantle the thing they spent their life building. Um, they're going to have a rough go of it. Um, and like, no one's got empathy. You're like, Oh, I sold it for a gazillion dollars and I'm sad. And like, everyone's like, well, boo hoo, whatever. Um, but it doesn't mean you're not actually not feeling good about the world. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a weird thing. I don't, I don't know of a good analogy that really fits it, but there is nothing like packing your own junk in a box and going home for your last day. It's very final. And he's like, what do you say? You say, thank you a lot. I, that's what I did. I got genuine um, appreciation for these people that had been on this wild journey, as we talked about in the beginning of the conversation. Um, many of these people had been with me through this entire wild journey. So thank you for hanging in there with us. Um, but it was still kind of sad and weird because it was like over. Mm. It was just done. Um, so you're going to be a little disrupted, but the mindset, what I hope for people is peace that they were able to get the best overall outcome they could get for all the people they cared about and that they don't have any regrets like that. Part of this is a regret minimization. Yeah. I know your future self after you sold the business because it was me and I had lots of them. And I know a lot of CEOs who had that. So like the, the sub subtitle of this book is probably regret minimization. Like how do I get there and be, like really okay. And then get to hear the stories. You get an email from somebody that was on your team and they're like, I just got promoted to be the CMO for the whole business. Man, that feels really cool. Mm, um, that's great. Such a, such a human answer, such an authentic answer. And again, an answer from somebody who has been there and done that and speaking forward to people who one day will be there and do that. And with hopes that this was helpful for each person hearing us today. Even if you are not an entrepreneur, don't want to be one, for those of us following the companies that we have in our portfolios, thinking about the implications of AOL merging with Time Warner, trying to play things forward, understand, should I hold this investment or not? Thinking about cultural fits and, and cultures and playing things forward is, is really valuable in many ways, of course, outside of investing in business in life as well. Sonny, we're about to play our game of buy, sell, or hold. But before I do, I imagine somebody might want to drop you a line and get some more insight, maybe do some business with you. Sonny Vanderbeck, how does the public get in touch with you? My website, sonnyvanderbeck.com, is the easiest way to get in touch with me. Or you can reach me through our business, satoricapital.com. Either one is great. I love spending time with CEOs, talking to CEOs. So just reach out and I'll be here for you. 
And before we do play our game, Sonny, I'm curious. I, obviously, I've mentioned Satori Capital. I've known you some over the years. Although, admittedly, I thought briefly you were based in New York when you're based in Dallas, Texas. So shows what I know. But what size of company do you typically invest in or work with? Yeah, so, so in our private equity business, um, typically these companies are called 100 to 1,000 employees, uh, maybe 50 million to 250 million in revenue is, is really where we spend most of our time. Well, let's close with our game, buy, sell, or hold. You know we're going to play it, Sonny. You don't exactly know what's coming, though, because I never let my players know ahead of time the questions. I mean, Jeopardy wouldn't be any fun if people already knew the, I was going to say the answers, but it's actually the questions. You ready? I'm ready. All right, great. So none of these things is a stock, but if they were, would you be buying, selling, or holding? And a few sentences as to why. Let's start with the likelihood that CEOs who sell and say they will stay around a year or two actually doing so. Buy, sell, or hold? Sell. <laughs> Without a doubt. Like, look, I, that's, the bankers tell you to tell everybody that you're willing to stay around for a year or a two. A year or good. two. It, it's always the same language. I'll stay around for a year or two. <laughs> and there's like 10% of them that are that they're actually – as likely to stay as to go. They just don't know yet because they don't know what they're getting into. Most of them, I, they already quit like three weeks before it closed. You just don't know it yet. Yeah. Very well said. A strong sell. Next one up. The sustainability of the present leaning toward virtual slash remote slash hybrid work. The sustainability of that maybe the power or productivity of it or not, buy, sell, or hold? Remote, sell, hybrid, buy. Give us a little bit more. Yeah. So what we have observed is that the lamentations of leaders around the challenges of fully remote work, we are seeing that ourselves in our portfolio, with our friends, in our own businesses, that it's very difficult. And here's who benefits the least from the remote work is the new team members. There's so much cultural building that happens in person. There's so much side conversations about how something works. When the threshold becomes, I now have to schedule a Zoom or write a half a page Slack to have what could have been a five minute drive-by that imparted a, an important piece of knowledge, it gets too hard. And so we've seen it play out at large. Look, there are some organizations who are built for remote work, and I'm sure it's going to work out great for them. But what we have seen is fully remote, works for a little while, and then begins to fray around the edges. On the opposite side, though, the hybrid work. So at Satori, we've always had a, a truly flexible work environment. Like if somebody needs to do XYZ at 2 in the afternoon, well, please go do it. Like, we want you to go do that. We want you to have flexibility in your life. Um, it's a very demanding, like all the jobs here are very demanding. Um, the least we can do is allow someone flexibility in their schedule. And so if someone has a reason to not be in the office that day, great, don't come in. Um, one of the things we actually do to support this, and in our case, um, we ask people to take a trip every year to deliberately work remotely from a place they love. Nice. And it helps keep our muscles strong about how do we make sure all our systems and processes work well for the remote team members. 
And it gives somebody the opportunity. Look, look, if you live in Minneapolis, being able to bail out and go to Florida for two weeks to work, what an upgrade. And a lot of times what we see is we'll see somebody, you know, two weeks of vacation and then work from that location for another two weeks. Uh And so now it's a month in Florida. I get to skip February in Minnesota. (laughs) Sign me up for that. Um, so it's, it's a benefit to our team members. It's an opportunity for them to have joy. We've got somebody on the team that loves to surf. Um, we might find them in Nicaragua or Honduras, um, who knows working from there. So we're very supportive of the hybrid environment. Um, but the remote is just too hard. Next one up. You frequently refer to private equity as treating the businesses they own as mere baseball cards. They're looking to trade. So, Let's talk about the real thing. If they were stocks, buy, sell, or hold today baseball cards. I have no idea. I have no, it's, they're NFTs on paper, but you know, it worked out for lots of people. That one's one I have to pass. <laughs> we'll call that a hold. Next, two more for you. In your book, Sonny, you write, and I quote, the typical banker supervised auction process. Feels a lot like an arranged marriage where everyone leaves the question of whether this is a truly compatible partnership to chance. End quote. Sonny, two thirds of marriages in the world's most populous nation, India, are arranged. Buy, sell, or hold arranged marriage. Sell. So, I think the, the cultural wins there are really clear and it won't last. Whether it's good or not, works or not, is not relevant. Um, One of the exports of the West is culture, maybe our biggest export. Um, And we are aggressively exporting McDonald's, Starbucks, and sort of general cultural memes. And so I I think that one is um, on the way out. You know, agency does feel like something that we want for ourselves, we want for our kids, and probably we hope for our future. Uh, appreciate that. Last one for you. I've watched the first half of the first season. I knew it was a really good show, but I got distracted elsewhere. Many have loved this show. It seems somehow to speak into your work, Sonny. Buy, sell, or hold the HBO hit Succession. Buy. What have you taken away, assuming you've watched at least one episode? Oh, I have indeed. Um, you know, it's a buy because there there's some nuance in there that's really almost like inside joke humor. So, so for me, it's funny. Um, for those of us that are in family businesses, they are wilder than anyone realizes. Um, cousin Larry just wants his check. He doesn't want to hear about the growth. Um, you know, it, it, all of these characters, they're obviously caricatures in the show. Um, but they exist and they're real. I think it misses some of the um, the deep human moments of caring for each other that we actually see on the ground. But like, no one wants to watch that on TV. That's that's the Lifetime Channel's version of Succession um, about this wonderful family that cares for everyone. And so, as a um, all of the foibles and poor behaviors and personalities sort of writ large for TV, it's amazing. Love it. Sonny Vanderbeck, thank you so much for being generous with your insight, not just about the process of selling, which is a big part of your work and your book, but so much around that, the process of starting a business, of making it conscious, of ensuring that you're winning 
in the future for people that you might be selling out, but not in that kind of way. There's so much exemplary about what you're helping teach us. You've shared a lot through this podcast this week, and I'm excited to hear what you do next in the future. It's probably just more Satori, but if you got another book in you, Sonny? You know, I never thought I would be an author. And one day I realized I needed to write the book I wish I could have read the first time I sold my business. And because of my crazy life experience with, you know, selling and buying back and doing and now being an investor and like, who else? Who's going to write this book? So <laughs> did I need a, to be an author in my day job that is already busy? No, of course not. Um, but I hope to be able to speak to the future of me. Near the end of his book, I think Sonny sums up very well what he achieves in selling without selling out. I think some of this podcast did it for you, but as always, there's so much more there in the book. Most people who love books, they go see the movie or hear the podcast, and they say something like, yeah, that was good, but the book was better, and I think that's true. Near the end of his book, here's what Sonny writes, quote, over the course of this book, we've looked at the despair that comes from selling to the wrong guys and the joy of selling to the right guys. We've seen the pain that follows a bad investor and the uplifting effect of a great investor. We've talked about how preparing for a sale starts with preparing yourself. We've taken a deep dive into the reasons for selling and identified all the options. We've mapped out the path to selling consciously, where there is a good outcome for every stakeholder beyond the seller and the acquirer. We've thought through the process for identifying the right buyer and unpacked hard-won insights for selling smart. And we've dug into the challenges that come after the sale. End quote. Again, I trust we did some of that on this week's podcast. For those who want to go deeper, you're going to find even more in the book. In the meantime, we move from selling this week, next week, to math. Looking forward to being with Jordan Eldenberg next week. Have a foolish weekend. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com. 